You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today we have a special guest on, Mr. James Jim Cobb. Jim is a defense attorney, and he has got a great story. In fact, he put his story in a book that was a bestseller called Flood of Lies that um, details the defense of two individuals who were wrongly accused of uh, killing basically 35 individuals, um, and the same exact thing basically happened. Um, Same circumstances happened um, the second time around, on another time, essentially. Uh, Jim... Uh, has practiced law for, I don't know, Jim, what, like 30 or 40 years now? 45 years. 40 it's, it's, longer than you, it's longer than you've been alive, right? <laughs> exactly. It's true. exactly. I'm, yeah. I'm 36 I was trying old. murder cases when you were in utero. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I find this this story, the, I've read Flood of Lies. It's a fantastic book for, for those who are interested. It's available for purchase on Amazon. Um, it's about uh, the, the St. Rita's nursing home tragedy and Hurricane Katrina. I find this the sort of defense of people that are, are wrongly accused for political purposes super interesting. Um, it's part of I'm, – I'm an attorney, for those of you who don't know. Um, and that what we're taught in terms of law school and, being a, and becoming an attorney is really that sort of uh, unbiased defense of individuals. Our country has, uh, has roots in that same sort of approach. Um, but in terms of like sort of starting this discussion, discussion, Jim, tell us really about, we were talking about this before we got started, but tell us about how our country and our founding fathers viewed this sort of uh, approach to defending people who the mob really wanted to go after. And right. Well, take, take it where you take from there, take us to where, how that, um, how that, uh, in how your story relates to that right. sort of defense. Well, I was inspired, uh, by, by that story, uh, you know, remember we fought a revolution over this. Uh, we were subjected to quote, the King's justice and the King's justice was whatever he wanted to be. And we fought a revolution against that overthrew the, the British and then, and then instituted the system whereby those charged with crimes were presumed innocent, innocent. They were cloaked with the presumption of innocence. And the government was required to prove someone guilty. They had to prove guilty with legally admissible evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. So we went the exact opposite of what we were subjected to under George III and put up a system that favored, that theoretically favored the, the accused, right? Because in our system, we would rather a hundred guilty people go free than one innocent person go to jail. And th- that's... That that's exemplified by John Adams, who was the second president. He was a lawyer in Massachusetts. Some of you folks may have heard. I don't know if they teach us anymore in school, uh, but the, the Boston Massacre, when British soldiers were killed by colonists, and uh, the British soldiers uh, c- killed some colonists, and they were charged with murder, and John Adams defended them, and it was a mob mentality. Everybody hated the British. Everyone said Adams would lose his law practice. He would lose any political future, et cetera. And he tried the case. And what most people don't know, and I'm 
that they got some folks listening that don't know the Boston massacre. Sounds like, wow, that's terrible. Somebody did something bad to us. Well, no, they didn't. <laughs> they were found not guilty in the Boston massacre. We were faced with the exact same thing in the Mangano case in St. Rita's and St. Bernard. And it just got back literally last week from another four week trial where, uh, an administrator was charged with nine counts of homicide in that he allowed the, the inside of the nursing home after a hurricane, the power was cut off. He didn't get power restored. He didn't evacuate. So they charged him with the deaths of nine people. And what happens in these high profile cases is when something bad happens, like when 35 people drown in, in a nursing home, politicians come forward and have to defend the rights of these poor people. And they make, they turn it into a political football out of which they want to get some, some mileage. Same thing in Florida. In Florida, nine people died, and you know, the public is shocked, and they, as they should be, uh, the public is shocked. And, and there's a there's a sort of a a thirst for vengeance, which is another American trait, isn't it? We're pretty, pretty good at that too. And so the, this guy was charged with nine counts of homicide, and uh, the, the the whole notion of the government versus the individual. Let me give you a, a data point. In the federal system, in the federal system of law, federal law, federal court, 95% of the people who are charged with a crime plead guilty. Of the 5% that go to trial, you know what percent get convicted? 97%. So the deck is stacked. They have a, a thing on the, the only thing written on the front of the Supreme Court in the United States in Washington is equal justice under law. That's their motto, that's our motto. Let me suggest to you folks that there's nothing equal about the justice uh, that is dispensed in this country. The only thing that gets you close to equal justice is if you got a lot of money. Yeah. And, and uh, I would say the, the Mangano case back in 2007 probably cost the Manganos in 2007 dollars a million dollars. Uh, this case in Florida, not quite that much. It was, it was, we went too well quickly. But the power of the government is overwhelming, which is why, folks, when you all watch television and the news comes on, you see somebody walking out the courthouse on, on, on Poitras and Camp, pleading, they just pleaded guilty. It's because the government is overpoweringly, just so powerful and so rich that they throw stuff at you that you just can't fight back. And that, that is the, my attraction to the practice of law uh, was the notion of defending those kinds of people. The people who were overwhelmed, didn't have a chance, and uh, couldn't win. And that, that attracted me, which is why I drank a lot of gin. <laughs> well, how do, you, how do you square that, uh, that circle of the presumption of innocence versus the 97% of 5% of, of people that actually go to trial are uh, are found guilty what is the is, is it and and then i guess it's just the cost of defense is that really what it is it is and and it, and you know the the criminals know this and the criminal lawyers know this they know the data they know that, that if you go to trial against the federal government you're in bad shape but look uh, although as you will recall stunningly our district attorney jason williams was tried in federal court was acquitted yeah. mostly because mostly because you know why he didn't take the witness stand and the government's proof failed. But I can't uh, overstate the importance of money 
in the criminal justice system on behalf of defendants. And you, most of most of the folks, most of the indigent people that, that they have indigent defenders, they have lawyers who are appointed for them. But let's let's be let's be frank. That's not the lawyer you want if you're about to go to jail, right? You don't want a court-appointed lawyer uh, who's making thirty-five thousand dollars a year on a good day. So uh, it, that that to me just jumps out because I saw the money we spent in Florida. You know, you need a, we had an expert witness. We needed seven thousand dollars to get him from uh, Brown University in Rhode Island to Fort, Fort Lauderdale plus expenses. It gets very expensive, and uh, so I question the model of equal justice under law. It's equal justice under law if you can afford it. Right, and if even then the debt's stacked against you. Correct. So uh, that that makes anybody who takes this kind of job on, you know, we're tilting at windmills with Don Quixote fighting. It's David versus Goliath, literally. And I, I, I like those odds. You know, I, I get one, I get one stone, one pebble, and they've got 10,000 Syrians massed on the the islands so i like those odds actually philistines who weren't serious so describe to me the political outcry in both instances and compare and contrast these experiences because not only your experience is so unique and which is detailed in a like a best-selling book about defending this old couple that ran a nursing home in saint bernard parish where these unfortunate people uh, uh, perished in the aftermath of hurricane katrina and seemingly the same exact thing happened again. Lightning struck twice. Tell me about your experience in dealing with the political side of the equation and the sort of w- the witch hunt, the mob mentality that took place after both events. Right. Well, after Katrina, as you, will, you guys will recall, it was a the whole city was destroyed. Everybody was blaming everybody else. Everybody was blaming the Corps of Engineers. The Corps of Engineers were blaming Governor Blanco. And the... the they got a great thing that I use in closing arguments sometimes. When you when you point the finger of accusation at somebody, you have three pointed back in your own direction. And our defense in the St. Rita's case, St. Bernard case, was what happened was that the federal levies failed. When I say failed, they just fell over down in St. Bernard before they reached design criteria. And they created an eight-foot tsunami, an eight-foot tidal wave that slammed into the nursing home and killed 35 people in their wheelchairs and their beds. You can't imagine anything more horrific than that, right? So the the 24 hour press cycle starts ginning it up and where are these people and someone needs to be accountable and so on and so forth. And that starts spinning. And you got people like Nancy Grace. I call her in my book, Nancy Disgrace because she tries people and convicts them before any evidence comes in, et cetera. So Sal and Mabel were hounded and the politicians who are in charge of law enforcement have to answer to the public. 35 people drowned in a nursing home that should have been evacuated. Who's going to do something about it? So the attorney general jumped up and said, I'll do it. I can get on TV to do that. Can I? Yeah. And that's what he's all about. Same thing in Florida. Nine old people died because in, in the heat, because Florida Power and Light didn't come out and fix the electricity. Uh, so our defense in Florida was, we didn't do it. Florida Power and Light did it. The uh, healthcare agency of Florida, ACA, did it. And there's another little fellow who we tried the case against who never showed up because we couldn't get him served, Rick Scott, 
who was the governor of Florida and now is a United States senator. And uh, he didn't do his job either. So in these kinds of cases, what defense lawyers try to do is we try to find someone to prosecute other than our guy. Okay, our guy's been charged. We got to find another guy, another bad guy, and do a better job of prosecuting them than the, gov the government does of prosecuting us. And at the end of the day, the jury's then left with this this notion of, okay, wait a second, was it these guys or was it these other folks? And you know what that combines to create reasonable doubt, right? And, and that's how, that's how you walk them. Uh, but it, uh, I don't want to be cavalier about it. The the, the People who get ground up in the system, it's it's life changing, it's life shortening, it's life altering. Uh, that my, my guy in Florida, Carbio, he, he put up with this for three years. And in, in Florida, the government, the, the, we filed a motion to throw the case out after the government's evidence was in. The judge granted it. It's called a judgment of acquittal. And they granted it, which meant the government hadn't even put on sufficient evidence to go to a jury. I think that's so crazy. How. It's, a, it's unbelievable. It's virtually unprecedented in that building in Fort, in Fort Lauderdale, virtually unprecedented uh, by this judge who's a tough, conservative, O-line prosecutor judge. He and I tussled, to put it mildly, over the course of four weeks. I can get on anybody's nerves in four weeks. But he got on mine. So I, I let him know how we felt. At the end of the day, he saw through it. But most judges don't. They don't step out there. They don't step out of their comfort zone. They're not going to take a chance. They run for re-election. They're subject to the political winds, just like everybody else is. And uh, so, but this guy did it. He stepped up and uh, we, we were eternally grateful for it. And the, the client, Carballo, slept for the first time in three and a half years through the night. Imagine that. Imagine you got you guys got kids and stuff like that. He's got kids, grandkids, et cetera. And he's 63 years old. And he's wondering if he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. He had nine counts of aggravated manslaughter of an elderly person. That's what they call it. There. We call it negligent homicide in Louisiana. Nine counts of uh, aggravated manslaughter, 30 years per count. So he was exposed to 270 years of prison time if he were convicted. The judge uh, at the beginning of the trial wanted him to understand his risks and said uh, we exposed to 270 years he asked the prosecutor what are the guidelines say the sentencing guidelines will tell you what what you can expect when you get convicted and the guidelines suggested that he would get 27 years well that's better than 270 but it's not much consolation to somebody who's 63 right so right. it's that kind of pressure on the families that kind of pressure on the lawyers that kind of pressure on everybody and uh, it's, it, it's quite remarkable to be in the middle of it. So you detail in Flood of Lies the sort of personal toll that that particular case took on you. And uh, my question to you is, you see another one of these come down the pike in 20, when did you take this case on? 2019. What, were, what, what was your thought process at that point in time? Obviously it was flawed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But and I, I will tell you this, I, I, and I, had I known in 2019 that I'd be in this case until 2023, I wouldn't have taken it. I wouldn't have taken it because 
you know, I'm, uh, I'm getting up there in age. I'm 70 years old. And if Greg does his job, uh, he tells me I'll be able to retire when I'm like 97. <laughs> <laughs> he wants me to continue to put money in, which of course I'm trying to do. But uh, it's just, not, it's just not, it's a young person's game. Okay. It takes such a toll on your body, the stress, the lack of sleep. And, and you, you, you go on the court nine o'clock in the morning until five o'clock in the evening every day. Right. You're getting up at four thirty to prepare for the nine o'clock, and then you're not sleeping at night, tossing and turning, and you do that for four weeks, and uh, sometimes it's hard to survive. So if another one came up today, and somebody wanted me to do it, I'm going to come down here to your office, Greg, and say, "Please take me out of here. Take me out. I'm not taking." Well, that, it seems it seems like there's no shortage of them. Just, I mean, I'm thinking of Ida. I'm thinking of. Uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and what, what's going to happen is we're going to have more and more of them as climate change aggravates and continues. We've seen the increase in numbers of hurricanes. We've seen the increase in severity of hurricanes. So this is going to happen every single time. And what, what happened, the, the dilemma that the nursing home is faced with is, do we evacuate? Do we take 146 people who are just frail and sick and comorbidities and every disease you can imagine some of them hadn't been out of the nursing home in years and put them in a bus and take them someplace. Or do we stay where we are and shelter in place and worry, have the worries of loss of power or whatever, whatever. So as climate change increases the severity and frequency of hurricanes, we're going to have more and more of these kinds of disasters. And, and your folks listening uh, will have seen the inside of, of what we do. Uh, it's hard for the prosecutor not to do something about 35 people dead. You know, you know, when we, when we were preparing for the other case and my co colleague, John Reed, uh, we, we thought they had a terrible case. I mean, we thought we had the better side of the case. And I asked John Reed, so what do they have? He said, they've got 35 bodies. Right. Just like in Florida. What do they have? They've got nine bodies of which they get to show pictures, Right. They get to show the dead, dead old people pictures. So this is this is not the last one of these you've seen. It's the last one of these you've seen with me at the at the, at the helm. I won't be driving the boat again. Or it's the if you look fundamentally at our country, this happened at the dawn of our country as well too, where people died in the Boston massacre, Bostonians, and the mob wanted justice and wanted Correct. to punish somebody. As a result of that, even though and the, pe the right. people they picked as defendants were the most unpopular people in the world. They were British redcoats and they got prosecuted. But in validation of our of our tradition and validation of the system we'd ultimately have, they were acquitted by a jury in Boston because it turned out that the evidence was that the crowd initiated the conflict, throwing rocks, bricks and other kinds of things and injured some British soldiers. So that was their defense. There's there's and, a uh, there's a great quote that John Adams uh, used at the, in his closing argument, and I'm not going I'm just gonna paraphrase it, but it's it's facts or stubborn things. That's exactly what he said. Facts are stubborn things, aren't they? I've, I've used that with myself on more than one occasion. So what we what, what we do in the law business is we steal shit from each other. Okay, we we hear something good somebody else uses, we we, we use it. So facts are stubborn things. Uh, the, the other, the other thing that I want to really, we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, but the money aspect of this 
you know, what do you do as a defendant? You've worked your whole life. You've saved some money for retirement, et cetera. Now you're faced with this seminal event of maybe losing your freedom. And of course, the answer is you take your money out and you spend it. But at the end of it, and you're acquitted and you're innocent and you're not guilty, you've just blown through $600,000. Right. For which there's no recompense. Right. And then that doesn't uh, even account for the potential civil litigation on top of it. Right. Well, it, every in my experience, in, in, for instance, in, in the St. Rita's case, there were 35 deaths. How many wrongful death cases do you think were filed on the civil side? I have no idea what. 34. Uh, do you know why the one didn't file suit? Because one of the dead people, they didn't have any relatives. So 100% of the people who had relatives filed suit. Same thing in Florida. And uh, these kinds of uh, criminal cases really should be civil cases. Uh, the people in, in St. Bernard recovered monies for the loss of their relatives. Uh, the people in Florida recovered monies for the loss of their relatives from Florida Power and Light, from the insurance company, from the nursing home, et cetera. So that, that's where this kind of stuff belongs. And it points to the notion that you need to elect folks, uh, principal prosecutors, prosecutors who aren't going to do the popular thing for their own uh, enhancement, but it can adhere to the law, which is that for a prosecutor to bring a case, he has to have a good faith belief that he can obtain a conviction with legally admissible evidence. If he doesn't have a good faith belief that he can get a conviction, then he shouldn't bring the prosecution. And that's what we did in Florida. We told you, we told them, you don't have a good faith belief. We wrote them to him 18 times. We gave him all the evidence. We gave him this, that, and the other thing. And they went forward with it. And let me be kind to them and tell them at the trial, we slaughtered them. They did, the, the judge didn't even let the jury make a decision because the, no. their case was so bad. It was so bad, he wouldn't send it to the jury to make a decision. Uh, that's called a directed verdict. It, it directs a verdict of not guilty. It's called a judgment of acquittal in Florida. And then, let me uh, uh, sort of a sideline, one of the prosecutors with whom I did not get along, imagine that, Greg. I didn't get along with somebody. One of the prosecutors in the argument on the motion for judgment of acquittal referred to Mr. Carballo as a despicable murderer in open court. So I'd had enough. And uh, we walked outside and there were five or six TV cameras, et cetera. And I, I said that what counsel just said in there and calling my client despicable murder is out of bounds, unethical and improper. Mr. Carballo has already been acquitted by the judge who's sitting right there. So he is a truly innocent American. And for the prosecutor to call him despicable is beyond the pale. Shame on him and he ought to apologize. And of course, they never do, do they? I think that just fundamentally the fact that these p people, the prosecutors, et cetera, that are elected is an issue. And and you have to, you have to wonder, like, you have to, in terms of the print, you need principled, ethical in individuals. But tell, count how many elected officials fall into that category in this city, or in zero point zero zero. Right. Well, I mean, I, it's because people you need that you need that high profile case. You need to stamp your ticket to the next election, and right. And yeah, and and the odds are in your favor if you if you take the case, even if it's a bad case. Um, Overwhelming, and then the other yeah. the other dynamic that's going on both in the federal system 
And in the state systems, they have a division known as the screening division. In fact, there's been some stuff on television here. I saw when I yeah. still got back that Morris Bart's office is lending some of his lawyers to the uh, to Jason Williams' office to screen the cases. Screening means look at it and see whether you can win it. If you win it, you accept it. It goes to a division. It gets prosecuted. If you don't think you can win it, you refuse the charges. Uh, so they get a they get a chance to cherry pick the cases they want to accept and cherry pick the cases they don't want to accept. So if, if you're doing that and you know what you're doing, you should never lose a case. That, that's why they're in the 95% category, because they pick the ones that they want to bring charges on, and they usually just have overwhelming evidence of it. Now, yeah, I don't want to understate the notion that they got a lot of criminals out there, and, and not just in violent crime, but in white-collar crime, in the kind of stuff that you guys do. Uh, thankfully, I suspect you didn't have any Bernie Madoff investments or any, these, or any, or any of these bombs, but they got bombs at every level, don't they? Right. And uh, so you, you got to be careful in who you elect to important positions. And most people never, ever think of that when it comes to a district attorney's election. As, as a defensive attorney, how do you um, I mean, there's there's instances where you're defending somebody who's obviously uh, a criminal. And at what point does uh, the 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 nobleness of defending somebody with the presumption of innocence, uh, it, you kind of, there's a conflicting component to that. Where, oh, huge. Yeah. Yeah. Where somebody's obviously committed a crime, but they have the right to legal counsel. And so what's that sort of situation for you? Who's who you're defending somebody who is, uh, should, should be in jail and should go right. to jail. Well, luckily for the public, we don't, we the lawyers don't make that decision. Yeah. We don't make that decision. And, and, you know, oftentimes one of the other things we don't do, I don't do, I never ask the client whether they did it or not. What I want to know is what is the evidence that they have that's legally admissible that indicates a, a violation of the statute? Uh, I had a case one time where I got appointed to it by a judge at Tulane and Broad where a woman, a 19-year-old woman with a baby in her car, Left the baby in the car. She went into the Schwegmans on St. Claude and Legion Fields. I'm dating myself. It's not a Schwegmans anymore. There's no Schwegmans. But she left the baby in the car. And it was summertime. And the baby had a fever. The baby dehydrated and died. And the government, because it was on the front page of the paper, charged her with negligent homicide. And I got appointed. So I wound up in the front page of the newspaper defending this woman. My mother called me and says, why are you doing that? Are you out of your mind? She killed that baby. I said, Dorita, I don't know that. And you don't know it either. So let's see how it turns out. So that tension that you referenced, that lawyers have to represent people uh, who are often guilty uh, is one that we assimilate and just accept and, and move on. We don't, we don't really think about it much. The harder person to represent is the one who you know is innocent. That's the tough representation. Because if you lose that one, you you know you look at a jump out a window. Right, like this guy, that, this guy, like this guy, right in Florida. You, you, if you lose that one, you and the, his his wife was a who's a banker. Uh, she had several meetings with her and several te telephone meetings and she was, you know, distraught, wasn't sleeping, et cetera. 
And she every at the end of every conversation for a couple of years, she would say, Jim, our lives are in your hands. Well, after about 50 times of that, I told her, I said, Barbara, I don't really need to hear that. I kind of know that. Okay. You could lay off the, our lives in your hands shit. I would appreciate it. Uh, so we went to dinner after the acquittal. And this was actually a tender moment. We went to dinner after the acquittal. We ordered a glass of champagne and we took a sip. And I said, Barbara, here's your life back. And I put my hands together like that, which you can't see. Put my hands together. Here's your life back. So that's pretty cool to be able to do that. And that's that is supposed to make it all worthwhile. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. A lot dependent upon the money that you made on the case. Right. So this is the last nursing home case that Jim Cobb will take. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Unless, of course, somebody came around and said, look, I've got a million dollars. I'm going to give it to you as a retainer. It's fully earned. We just need you to give us some advice. I said, I'm in. Right. Because then I could do something. With, you know, I, I could give Greg and, and Doug some money and they could do something with it. But no, I'm, not, I'm done. And I, one of the things that I learned in this last trial is it's a young person's game. It's it's combat. Okay, do you want to go into the ring with a 70-year-old guy or do you want the 35-year-old guy? Right. Because those seventy-year-old guys do have some tricks up our sleeves, right? Well, and your batting average is pretty good. Not bad, right? Not bad lately. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Your insight. If, if I close my eyes, Doug, you sound just like your dad. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. People call the office and don't know who they're talking to. I guess that could be a good thing because if somebody's like out for a couple of days, then we can just. Uh, act like another one of us but yeah we all uh we all sound you, the same you particularly here. do that you, you know somebody's calling look at it. who bought this piece of shit stock for me said, hold on let me get, let me get my dad <laughs> <laughs> let's get dave on the phone yeah. and you can do that so it, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure fellas uh, you know you guys are great guys i'm gonna i'm gonna end i'm gonna ask a, a question because i know you're a connoisseur of uh new orleans the new orleans restaurant scene we're um under under the radar Restaurant, somebody coming in from out of town asking you number one spot to hit. That's not, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy. Where are you going? I have been a fan of and it got back on the track of going to N7. Oh, yeah. I'm going there tonight. Get out. Yeah. It's, uh, we it, 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 you should have good weather. It's beautiful setting, courtyard, great French food. Uh, N7 is, is high on my list. We're going next Wednesday with the Angelitas. Oh, We've never been because they call, they won't go because Albert thinks it's in the combat zone. <laughs> so, so, so I'm gonna I, I'm gonna I'm gonna gun up and we're gonna drive down to St. Claude Avenue and go to N7. Fantastic. So I think it's a I think it's a cool place. You really going tonight? I'm going tonight. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. It's gonna be fantastic. Yeah, we're going to a, a, there's a speaker at uh, at GNO uh, this afternoon that I'm a big fan of. A guy named Marion Tupi. Um, he wrote a book. It's in our lobby. I'll give it to you. You'll like it. But uh, we're going to go to that. Then we're going to go to N7. It'll be fantastic. Awesome. Well, have a good time, you guys. All right, Jim. Thanks so much for joining. And, uh, and share this. Share this with all your friends so they can give us a five-star review. And uh, and we're trying to if, grow the podcast. So. If Greg gives me the, the data on how to access it, I'll do that. <laughs> I need I need a link that I just make one click and then I've got it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks, Jim.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.